Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Nasek. Hello, Jason. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. Hello, listeners. It's October, so we have the most unoriginal idea to discuss all horror movies during this month. It's our second annual Splatter Cinema Month. The first movie we'll be discussing is 1985's Reanimator, starring Jeffrey Combs, Bruce Abbott, and Barbara Crampton. Directed by Stuart Gordon, this movie is unrated, with a running time of 1 hour and 24 minutes. Reanimator is based on the short story... Herbert West, Reanimator, written in 1922 by H.P. Lovecraft. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Reanimator. H.P. Lovecraft's wildly outrageous tale of grisly horror that has become a modern cult classic almost overnight comes to home video to haunt, thrill, and delight the mad scientists in us all. Reanimation, the science of bringing dead creatures back to life, is Herbert West's dream. West tests his secret life-rejuvenating potion on some cooperative corpses at a local morgue. It's a success! but only a temporary one, as the dead spring to life, reacting violently to their reanimation. Zombies are loose, and now West cannot control the very beasts he has recreated. The born-again dead are unstoppable. Even severed body parts take on life like so many split worms. Herbert West has a serious problem. Will he become the first in a new breed of headhunters, or are all of his woes coming to a head? Reanimator! An intense film of spine-tingling effects and macabre humor. Herbert West has a very good head on his shoulders and another one in a dish on his desk. Reanimator! It will scare you to pieces. Reanimator. Starting off our second annual Splatter Cinema Month. Jason, how are we tonight? I am thrilled tonight, man. I can't wait to get into this one. Ah. This is a blast, man. I just have to say right off the bat, the first thing I watched was the trailer on IMDb. And I have to mention this quote from the voiceover of the trailer. Absolutely brilliant. Here we go. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life and not one of them showed any appreciation. (laughs) I love that. There you go. Ah. Yeah, this is a first-timer for me, man. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, so usually we start off with earliest memories. So I guess your earliest memories were just a couple hours ago, huh? Yeah. Or or maybe, (laughs) I mean, maybe you know something about this movie heading in, so I shouldn't say that exactly. What earliest memories do you have of Reanimator, Jason? Well, this is another cult horror classic I've never seen before. I'll be honest. Yeah, I'm sure I saw the VHS box on the shelf at the video store and the title sounded intriguing and the cover looked intriguing, but I just wasn't attracted to the subject matter, nor were there any familiar names attached. So I just wasn't that interested. And obviously in 1985, it was another big year for movies in the theater. 
So this wasn't on my radar. And afterward, I never caught it on cable. And I'm sure I didn't know anyone else that was a fan of this film. Or at least I didn't know if they were in the years following. And you know what, Bill Bant? It's funny because now that I think of it, it wasn't until I attended film school in college that I can remember having a friend that was really a diehard horror fan, at least that I was aware of. So my exposure to the genre was a little bit on the lower side or lesser side in the 80s. Bottom line, I honestly knew less than nothing about this movie. So I'll just defer to you for the earliest memories. Okay, uh, for me, yeah, I'm not much better than you, to be honest. <laughs> right. You know, I saw this box sitting on my local Hollywood video or Blockbuster many years and passed it over again and again and again. And I didn't know anyone that saw this movie. I didn't know anyone in it. Or I don't remember anybody ever talking about it. So I was like, why am I going to rent something if no one's ever recommended it to me? Or I just don't really know what it's about. But then, hey, the internet happened. And I would read about this movie all the time online. And what a great film it was. And then eventually, Anchor Bay came out with a special edition DVD back in 2007, which included a syringe of the reagent vial. It's in the box with it. I saw a photo of that online in my research. That's awesome. So that's the one I have. So all these reviews about the DVD were just, you're like, oh, you got to get this. This is like the special edition has everything in it. And I bought it without ever seeing the movie. And it's very rare that I'll buy a movie if I haven't <laughs> seen it first, just because I don't want to spend 20 bucks on a stinker. But yeah, so I bought it. Finally watched it the first time in 2007. And it was one of those... Damn it, why did I not watch this movie earlier? It's so in my wheelhouse. I love horror comedies that work. Right. This is right up there with the Evil Dead series, uh, Return of the Living Dead, that kind of stuff. If you like that kind of stuff, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, this is for you. That is my earliest memory. So I've seen it first time like 15 years ago. So it's good to come back and, and revisit because I haven't really watched it that much. Because um, it's certainly a movie I cannot watch with two little kids in the house because right. God forbid... About half this movie, they cannot see or they'll be permanently scarred. Absolutely. <laughs> that would be no bueno. A little bit too much exposure. Great stuff, man. So you still have the DVD then? Do you still have the collector's item? Do you have the syringe that came with it? Yeah. Oh, so cool, man. Next time I come over to your pad, you got to show that to me. Oh, definitely. Because uh, I'll have a brand new appreciation for it. Um, So let's move on to initial thoughts, Jason. So this is your first time seeing it. So what were your initial thoughts of Reanimator? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to start off with a couple of the main players. Let's talk about initial thoughts there regarding the main, or at least the, the main influence behind this film, which happens to be H.P. Lovecraft. As you, Bill Bant, mentioned early on, this film is loosely, and I do want to emphasize the word loosely based on H.P. Lovecraft's story, Herbert West, Reanimator. And this is Howard Phillips Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft. He was an American writer of weird science, fantasy, and horror fiction. Lovecraft's literary themes were based around cosmicism, his ambivalent views on knowledge, the decline of civilization, and also science. His works were largely set in a fictionalized version of New England, a.k.a. Lovecraft Country, which serves as the central hub for his mythos. Throughout his adult life, 
Lovecraft was never able to support himself from earnings as an author and editor. He was virtually unknown during his lifetime and was almost exclusively published in pulp magazines before his death in 1937 from cancer of the small intestine. He was only 46 years old. So yeah, just a little bit about our guy, H.P. Lovecraft. Highlighting another main player, an actual performer and actress from this film. I wanted to give a shout out to Barbara Crampton who plays Megan Halsey, uh, excuse me, Megan Halsey, the daughter of Dean Halsey in this film. And Barbara was known as one of the scream queens of the 80s. Uh, she was featured in some classic films, some classic horror films in the 80s, such as uh, Body Double, From Beyond, Chopping Mall. And after the 80s, she was also in Space Truckers, she was in a couple different soap operas, Days of Our Lives, but uh, later on she was on 174 episodes of The Young and the Restless. And then she went back to horror with You're Next. And she did a ton of other films. And up to this day, she's still working. And according to IMDb, is in an untitled H.P. Lovecraft project, which is in post-production. How about that? Coming full circle, right? Here's an initial thought. We have a brief appearance in the cold open of this film from a character named Dr. Hans Gruber. That's right. <laughs> How freaking great is that? Oh, man. Just the fact that there's a character named Hans Gruber. And this is, this is 1985. And that's a few years before Die Hard, where the name Hans Gruber becomes extremely famous. So just wanted to shout that out. And every time I hear Hans Gruber in this movie... I just wanted to hear Michael Kamen's score from Die Hard Play. Hey, man, Bill Bant, you know I'm big on the opening of, of a movie, how, how a film begins. I, I'd like a solid, strong opening. And I thought this did the job, man. Uh, we have a great cold open and then solid opening title card with credits. Uh, we get music, which is clearly a blatant ripoff of Bernard Herrmann's score from Psycho. A little bit. Yeah, yeah, just just a little bit. This one's kind of drumbeat. The drumbeat does kick in, which is a lot of fun. But the opening credit sequence itself pays visual homage to Saul Bass's work in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo from 1958. Also, this particular location, the, the main backdrop, or at least I should say uh, for a large portion of the film, is... Miskatonic University in Arkham, Massachusetts. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Arkham, A-R-K-H-A-M. Ever heard of it? Maybe Arkham Asylum from Batman? Well, we'll get to that later. Some other, another, another, another initial thought. We get some 80s boobs in this movie. And that's pretty much right off the bat. After the cold open and the title credits, we get some 80s boobs. And just not in the traditional sense, not right off the bat. We see some 80s boobs on a soon-to-be corpse, actually. <laughs> but hey, the boobs uh, do come on strong later. And don't you worry, there's plenty for the ladies in this movie as we get a couple of uh, zombie flopping dicks throughout the film as well. So... When we're introduced to our protagonist, or one of our protagonists, I should say, Herbert West, medical student, in the cold open of this film, we see him uh, working with Dr. Hans Gruber, or a version of Hans Gruber, at a uh, Swiss institute. It's called, I think, uh, Zurich University School of Medicine. And now he's arrived back in the States, in Massachusetts, and he's at the Miskatonic uh, University, 
And the Dean Halsey introduces Herbert West to a fellow medical student, Dan Kane, and says this. He says, ah, yes, this is Herbert West. He was doing independent research. And then if it's not ominous enough, he goes, he worked with Hans Gruber. <laughs> and again, I just wanted to hear Michael Kane's score when he said that. I just love that introduction because it's already got that ominous tone to it. He was doing independent research, which means he was up to no good. So I love his introduction and especially, wow, Jeffrey Combs, man, what a standout portraying our protagonist, Herbert West in this, the mad scientist, man, he's just so well cast. Maybe you can help me out here, but I don't know what he had done before this as an actor, but he just plays that creepy genius to a T, just the right amount of crazy, something always bubbling under the surface. He nails the over-the-top performance and the cadence of the delivery of his lines is spot on. So great. Now, Bill Bant, certain aspects of this movie are obviously goofy. This is a horror comedy. It's a horror like sci-fi comedy. The the reanimated killer cat in this is ridiculous. The fluorescent reagent, which is the serum used to reanimate the creatures in this film, the lack of real scientific explanation. And there's just, there's almost no scientific jargon in this, which is just hilarious and great. Despite that, the go with it factor really works for some reason. If you understand that this is a comedy, because clearly from the get, this movie isn't taking itself too seriously, man can't say enough about the special makeup effects really solid throughout I like the ideas that are underneath here, the HP Lovecraft concepts. It makes the story even more interesting. It adds a layer. Question isn't like, how did they make this discovery or the science behind it? As I was mentioning, there isn't any science jargon, but rather that we just go with it. We understand that they made a scientific breakthrough, or at least Herbert West did, and developed the serum, this quote-unquote reagent. And the question is really, should he have done that? Should he be meddling with life after death? And you can kind of go down that rabbit hole and that's fun, but that's really not the point with this movie. It's just what happens when you bring back somebody to life uh, and what do they bring back with them? So this is definitely a dark horror comedy with some weird Lovecraft ideas, but thinking about it as a comedy, it really works on that level because it's so over the top and filled with holes that you have no choice but to sit back and watch the silliness. There's plenty of films in this campy horror comedy genre. Bill, you, you nailed it. You said Evil Dead. Dead Alive, the Peter Jackson film is another great one. I mean, those are classics, along with this one, in my humble opinion, as of just a couple hours ago, seeing it for the first time. But it's it's hard to balance all the different factors in a movie to, to make this really work, to really play up the tropes of horror to the nth degree with just the right layer of cheesy dialogue and the incredible aptitude of the makeup artists. It's just, if you don't get it right, it's either going to be ridiculous and dumb or maybe just gory and grisly and not entertaining, and that was just uh, disturbing. So this does it the right way, and I, I think uh, the movie accomplishes, yeah, the horror comedy in spades. So what are your initial thoughts, Bill Bant? Yeah, so watching it this time, it really felt like if you crossed Pet Cemetery, and you mentioned it already, Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. Like Peter mm-hmm. Jackson got the script for Pet Cemetery. He goes, okay, this is what I'm going to do with it. And he came up with Reanimator. It almost follows the same premise. Instead of burying a corpse in the cemetery to bring them back to life, it's we have this magical elixir that we just stick in someone's head and 
voila, you are back, but not quite back like you're supposed to be. And right. the fact that uh, Jeffrey Combs, who plays Herbert West, keeps trying to get this right with horrible results is just hilarious. It's like, dude, stop. Reset. It's amazing. He just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper until he can <laughs> prove that he can get this right. And in the meantime, it's just ultimate chaos. My another initial thought was just Barbara Crampton. I mean, what convinced her to move forward with this movie? Because she was in some really messed up stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they certainly didn't pay her enough because it's a low budget movie. But right. I mean, there's one scene where it even it, it starts off with she gets kidnapped, stripped naked, and then a headless corpse is feeling her up like a 13 year old touching boobs for the first time. She's being groped. Yeah. Oh, I know. Who had the job that had to grab her like that? Did she at least go to the director like, can I have my boyfriend come in and just grab me? So I feel. Oh, so, yeah. No kidding. It, it's Absolutely. so uncomfortable. And then there's the, you know, potential rape scene of her. And that's just, it's just so disturbing watching this time. I was just like, oh my God, this is so weird. And I, I definitely had a Mandela effect moment because I initially thought what had happened in that scene was that the headless corpse had put Megan on the table and Dr. Hill's head, which was in a exam dish, which is full mm -hmm. of blood, was between her legs. And he was trying to get in there. Kinda. Yeah, yeah, right. Not the way that it did it in the film where the headless corpse actually grabs the head and it starts like licking her body and it just right. leaves this blood trail all the way down to her nether reason where luckily it eventually stops. And it's just like, oh, my God, that must have been a tough day of filming. I just, oh, my God, I can't. Well, I'm, go ahead. Yeah, if we saw the same version, though, I mean, the headless corpse, the like the torso, the body does take the head and places the head right between her legs. I mean, it's right between her knees and it is making the approach. Right. And then they are interrupted. So it's still pretty damn close yeah. to getting, I mean, it's already disturbing and disgusting and wrong on so many different levels and offensive, but uh, man, it comes close to just being like, oh, okay, if this goes any further, I might have to turn this off <laughs> kind of movie. I'm just thinking the whole time I'm thinking like, how do you start your day filming? Like, hey, guess what, Barbara? Today's the, the big scene. Right. I don't know how an actress was able, an actress is able to put themselves through a scene like that. It's not just a a sex scene per se. This is an implied rape. And yes, we've had movies with rapes in it, but there was just something really weird about it watching this one because it's supposed to be kind of silly at the same time. It's a headless corpse that's doing it, but it was yeah, it was it was totally creeping me out. Yeah, in typical eighties fashion, there was over. There's the over the top uh, sexuality of the film and it's just too much. However, I, you know, yeah, real credit to Barbara Crampton because in the research, and I hope I'm not stepping on any of your research that'll come up later in our segment, but she was completely accepting of doing nudity in film. If it right. served the story, if it served the film, she was 100% okay with it all. And I have then to assume or understand that she felt this served the horror aspect of the story. So she was okay with it, but it's hard to watch. 
Right. And I, I kind of agree with her too, because it does kind of fit into the story because it is this doctor, Dr. Carl Hill, who has this infatuation with Megan. And because of the serum, it kind of makes you do weird things. So now he's acting on animal instinct impulses. So the scene, yeah, it does fit. I'm, I'm not saying take it out. It's just, just watching it this time and just thinking of what an actress has to go through to get through that scene. And I'm sure mm-hmm. it, it wasn't comfortable for David Gale either. And if you see the research, if you read the research about this, uh, his wife wasn't too happy with this either. And, you know, some say it was the reason for their divorce. Um, it was already on the rocks and supposedly when they went to a screening, his wife literally walked out of the screening. Wow. Screaming at him. That's intense. I know. I read multiple stories about that. And then he supposedly the director conferred it too. So I was like, okay, that's kind of crazy. That was just, that's just a weird messed up scene. Yeah. But I still like this movie though. <laughs> I got you. Um, but yeah, that's all I got for initial thoughts. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad you included that because, you know, that was an upsetting sequence and I, I should also have had that in my initial thoughts. But like yourself, I found overall watching this movie for the first time today an enjoyable, fun experience outside of that particular section. All right. So let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of your favorite scenes and moments from Reanimator? All right. Let's get into it. Reanimator from... 1985. So uh, I'm going to start right from the get, the cold open. I do love a movie that gets right to it. Let's not waste any time. And I was surprised. I queued it up on Voodoo and I was expecting like a some of the production shingles to come up first and maybe some credits, but boom, it just opens right on an establishing shot of University of Zurich School of Medicine. We understand, obviously, we've got a couple of nurses or uh, instructors slash teachers walking down a hallway and obviously with some urgency and they come to the Dr. Gruber's office door and they hear some rumbles happening, rumbling happening behind the door and some noises and obviously something's going wrong behind the door. They open the door and there's uh, Herbert West leaning over Dr. Gruber who is not looking well. He's already looking quite like a zombie with a gray face, and he's got blood leaking from his face and his mouth and his eyes. And all of a sudden, you know, one of the nurses leans over him, and they're speaking. I, I, it sounds German, I believe. Or is it is it German? Or I think they're in Switzerland. Yeah, in Switzerland. But... So you would think it would be Swedish, but it didn't sound Swedish. No. Obviously, everyone's horrified, except for West, who seems to be working on Dr. Gruber in some medical fashion. And then Dr. Gruber pops up and it's clear that he either has been dead or is is dead, but he's become reanimated and his eyes begin to bulge to the point of exploding and spurting blood all over the nurse. And it's gruesome (laughs) and it's wonderful at the same time because it is kind of funny, but the makeup's great. But it's just like, holy shit, we're not wasting any time. Here we go. And it's great because the nurse, after uh, Dr. Gruber, then his eyes explode. He falls dead. Now he's really dead. And the nurse goes to Herbert West. She says, you killed him. And he has the great line when he turns to her and says, no, I did not. I gave him life. That's just the way you open the movie. And it's 
totally a, like an homage to Frankenstein, you know, it's alive kind of thing. It's that type of iconic line, if you want to call it that, from Reanimator. But yeah, great way to, to uh, start off the movie because then the, the credits kicked in and it kick in and you get that music. Just that whole opening, just really solid. I give it an A+. Cool. So I'm, I'm going to step on some trivia right away on, on that opening scene. Yeah. Um, so that scene was actually added later on. Um, it wasn't in the initial shooting script, but the producer, Brian Yuzna, wanted to make sure that the audience got a sense of what they were going to experience throughout because they knew this was going to be a very freaky film. So they ended up putting that scene in there. And that was a good call because it definitely works. It, it shows, okay, this is going to be over the top, gory. And uh, yeah, your main character is a little bit out in left field. You get the, the mad scientist vibe. Oh, and I forgot to mention too, uh, Herbert West, played by the great Jeffrey Combs. Uh, again, his delivery is just priceless. Before he delivers that great line, what is it? Uh, no, I did not. I gave him life. He actually just says right off the bat that what had gone wrong, Dr. Gruber, is that he'd given Dr. Gruber too high a dosage. Right. So we know that he had applied this whatever this uh, dosage or serum, which we later learn is this reagent that he's developed, uh, that he'd given him this high dosage. And again, it just establishes so much right from the get. It's like the tone of the movie. We know what we're in store for and who our lead character is going to be and that he's nutso. It's great. And the great, great makeup effects. So, yeah, going back to an earlier question about uh, Jeffrey Combs, who he was, I never knew who he was until I had first seen him in The Frighteners, which is a Peter Jackson movie with Michael J. Fox. There you go. And he was some kind of bizarro figure in there. And then that kind of helped like, oh, okay, he's the guy that I've seen in that movie box with the damn syringe that I have no idea what that movie's about. Right. So that's all I really know him for. Yeah, I'll start with the moment. I'm going to try to keep this in order. So it's a moment is, uh, so Herbert, rents a room so you know we meet i don't know we would say it's the dean character but one of the first main characters we do meet in the movie is uh dean kane played by bruce abbott and he's i love that you just called him dean kane because that's all i I knew i was gonna do that i I knew i was gonna do that i kept thinking the same thing myself it's great yeah it's actually dan kane but you can't help but think dean kane when you see the name especially written down you're just like oh why didn't yeah dang it it's Clark Kent. I was just waiting to do the same myself. So we meet Dan Kane, who is a medical student at this hospital, which I guess is a hospital slash school. And he's there on scholarship and he's renting a house or he bought a house. I'm not even sure what it is. And he puts on the billboard that he needs a roommate. And like you said, in the beginning of the movie, he's performing CPR on this woman. The woman passes away. So he takes her down to the morgue. And then that's where we meet the Dean, Dean Hazley. And with Dean Hazley is Herbert West. And Herbert West is now going to become a, a student there. And obviously he does not agree with, I guess, the head teacher, which is uh, Dr. Carl Hill. And Dr. Carl Hill believes that the human brain cannot live more than 12 minutes after the body dies. Right. Six to 12 minutes, the brain stem remains active after death. So West is already after Hill about this. That's not true. Uh, your theories are way off base. So not a good first impression with someone that's going to be passing you or, or flunking you. 
Right, totally. And then just a little awkwardness between Kane and West because Kane's like, um, this is going to be a student. And Hazley's kind of hyping him up like he's like the super, super student. It's like, okay. So later on the, on the movie, um, we find out that Dan is dating the Dean's daughter, which is Megan, who we've already mentioned. And uh, they're having a little fun time in the house. And Megan's about to go home. And when they open the door, standing right there is West. Because West is looking for somewhere to live. So West comes in. He's kind of asking a couple questions. Goes down to the basement. So excited. This is big, empty basement. And he's like, I'm moving in. <laughs> That's the big selling point is the basement. And <laughs> Megan's with Dan also while they're going through the house. And it's just funny because Megan is facing Dan while West is Here's here's the money for the rent. Take it. And Megan is just no, no, don't don't let him, don't let him. But you can tell Dan needs the money, so money talks, and mm-hmm. he accepts West as his roommate, which will turn out to be one of the biggest mistakes of his life. Megan somehow knew and was trying to warn Dan, but hey, when you're broke, you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah, I thought that was just kind of funny that she she already had a read on him that he was trouble. But all Dan saw was the money. All that stuff is great, man. I'm glad you brought that up. That is a fun sequence, especially between Meg and Dan when she's like shaking her head. Don't, don't, don't. Because, uh, yeah, this guy West is Mr. Creepy McCreepalot. Because, as you said, Herbert West is extremely aggressive from the beginning. When he's introduced, when he arrives at the university and Dean Halsey brings him in, yeah, he's extremely adversarial or adversarial, real adversarial with Dr. Hill coming right at him saying, you basically uh, plagiarized Dr. Gruber's work. And I disagree with everything you've ever written or published or whatever it is. And it's like, dude, not not a good way. Like you said, not a good start. And I love it because I, I watched that scene a couple times because Jeffrey Combs, as have, or again, Herbert West, is just great in that scene with his delivery coming off so strong. And then you have Dan Kane, the other medical student, just looking at him like, what's wrong with you, dude? <laughs> First impressions, buddy. What's wrong with you? It's just yeah. a great look that Dan Kane gives him in that scene. And uh, I'm glad that you brought up Dan Kane's residence because we see the quick shot of Dan Kane posting on a cork board this notice saying, I'm like, is this an apartment or a house that he lives in? Because it feels like a house. It's got multiple rooms and a basement. However, on the little index card that he posts on the cork board, it says apartment for rent. And I don't know if you noticed this little tidbit, Bill Bant, but on it, the address for the apartment is 666 Darkmoor. Oh, no, I didn't look at that. No. Which I thought was pretty cool. Just a little over-the-top horror, yeah. like, got an idea? 666 Darkmoor. But yeah, definitely don't want this guy as your roommate. But like you said, money talks. And he's, yeah, offering first month rent, like, in cash, right up front. And Dan cannot refuse, even at the objections of his fiance. Yeah, and there's even another moment uh, that I love is when, you know, Megan's about to leave and they open the door and West is right there. And... All Dan's wearing is a bed sheet. And he's like, oh, let me go get changed. So he runs out into the to the bedroom. And Wes turns to Megan and goes, oh, did I startle you? And she goes, yes. And you would think he would then apologize for doing that and says nothing. Says nothing. Your instinct would be, oh, sorry about that. No, he doesn't say anything. All right, that's pretty cool. 
Absolutely. He's arrogant. He has superior attitude. He's really annoying and awesome. Yeah, I think he liked the fact that he did that. (laughs) There's a little foreshadowing, too, when Dan and Megan are having sexy time, and you can see the big poster on Dan's wall, which is from a Talking Heads concert, which is a little foreshadowing. Talking Heads. Good stuff, Bill Bant. My next favorite scene is in the middle of the movie. So I don't know if uh, you had any other moments or anything in between if we want to go kind of in chronological order. But I'm going to jump to Dr. Hill confronts Herbert West in the basement in the makeshift laboratory. Yeah, I had that down and then I took it off. Go ahead. I have a scene before that, but that's okay. All right. We'll uh, jump around a little bit then. Now, here we go. So we're kind of into the the middle of the movie here, but I love this scene because Dr. Hill wants what Herbert West has. Uh, Dr. Hill has been actually kind of patenting patenting or coming up, inventing his own laser surgical procedure, uh, which we are led to believe somehow manipulates the will of the human brain. And that's kind of what he's, he's testing out some theories. Anyway, he's performing some experiments on his own, but has now gotten wind of the fact that Herbert West has developed this reagent which instigates this reanimation in creatures, especially human beings, because at this point in the movie, we have seen a couple of dead people come to life, uh, one in the morgue and one being Megan's father, the dean himself, Dean Halsey, dies and comes back to life. And Dr. Hill is uh, witness to some of this. And in the scene, he knows that Herbert West has his makeshift laboratory in the basement of Dan's house slash apartment. This is funny because Herbert West is down in the laboratory in the basement and who comes from the shadows, but Dr. Hill just seems to be standing there or he's come down the stairs just ever so quietly. And it's just great. Oh, he's just there. Cool. And he approaches Herbert West and says, I know you have this reagent, you have this serum, I want it. I want your notes, I want what you have, and if you don't give it to me, I will make sure you go to jail for murder or all kinds of illegal activity. And this is kind of an interesting moment, which I saw re-watching the scene, Bill, that I didn't catch the first time, is that Dr. Hill actually commands Herbert West to turn over his notes regarding the research on this reagent saying, I will you to give it to me. And I didn't realize the first time that he's actually trying to almost hypnotize him in willing him to give him the information, which Herbert West, then he stares right into his eyes and he doesn't blink. And it's a great, another great little moment of performance by Jeffrey Combs in the role of Herbert West, where he just then kind of, is in this hypnotic state and just hands over all this research to Dr. Hill. And I hadn't noticed that before. And I was like, wait a minute, did somehow Dr. Hill take control over his mind in that moment? Anyway, it's kind of cool. And I'm going to touch on that a little bit, a little bit later. Again, West appeases him for a moment and gives him the research. And now Dr. Hill is looking through this microscope and looking at the serum, examining it. So West kind of lures him into this moment of quiet and decides to step backwards, grab a shovel, and smack Dr. Hill right across the back of his head, 
knocking him over, and immediately jabs the head of the shovel into the neck of Dr. Hill, severing his head from his body. And even before that happens, he's got, you see a great like profile shot of the head of the shovel right in the guy's neck, in Dr. Hill's neck. There's blood everywhere. And it's just, it's great makeup and it looks real enough. I mean, there's some campy effect to it, but still it's gross and grisly. Bottom line, West does separate Dr. Hill's head from his body. And this is where there's just one of the best effects of the movie. And this kind of plays throughout the the rest of the movie is that we have a headless Dr. Hill. You've got his head and then you got his body. And what Herbert West does is he takes the head He injects the head with the reagent serum, thus bringing the head to life. And then he goes over to the body with no head and injects the body with the serum. And then the body comes to life. And now you have Herbert West sitting at his laboratory table and the head is alive and the eyes open and there's Dr. Hill. And he just says, West, you bastard. (laughs) That's great. It's like, holy shit. And we're like, okay, well, clearly West has gotten the better of him at this point. He's in control. Not so much. Great shot because we see the headless corpse, the headless like torso approach West from behind. It's just Dr. Hill's body with no head. And the body grabs West by the head and slams his head into the table, knocking him out. And so now... Dr. Hill, with his head removed from his body, is totally alive. He's totally reanimated and has control of the situation and also takes control of the serum. So it's a great moment, just that moment with Herbert West sitting at the laboratory table with his glasses on. And we see that he's got Dr. Hill's head in one of those like metal or aluminum examination trays and Then the body of Dr. Hill comes up behind him and knocks him out. It's great stuff. It's a great scene. Yeah. Once again, Wes just doesn't know when to stop because (laughs) he kills Hill and then immediately injects him with the reagent, hoping this time it will work. Yeah, it is a pretty funny scene. The fact that he injects both the head, then the body Mm -hmm. to bring them both back. Just I guess just to see if the body would work without the head. And doesn't realize that it does. Right. It is a pretty cool scene because West is hoping to actually have a conversation with Hill. How are you feeling? What is going on? And the fact right. that Furthering Hill just comes back. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that Hill just comes back with, you bastard. <laughs> that he can talk with no lung. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah, right. So I'm going to go to one of my favorite scenes. I want to backtrack a little bit. So once West moves into the house with... Dan Kane. Dan has a cat. The cat's name's Rufus. <laughs> yes. And um, Megan and Dan are, are studying. I guess they do study before they have their sexy time. But Megan doesn't like the fact that West is in the house. So she's a little bit more uncomfortable there. And then she mentions, where's Rufus? Because Rufus always seems to come out when I'm here. So they decide to look around the house to see if they can find Rufus. Megan decides she's going to check out West's room and mm-hmm. she goes in and in the refrigerator is Rufus the cat dead as a door now. Oh boy. What happened here? And just at that moment, West comes home and catches Megan in the room and he throws a big stink because, Hey, 
I paid for this room. Why are you in this room? And she screams for Dan. And Dan comes in and she's like, look, Rufus is dead in the fridge. Wes killed him. And Wes is like, no, 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 no. I didn't kill your cat. The cat suffocated in a glass bottle because the the cat got in the trash. And I just put it in the fridge to preserve it. And I was going to tell you about it. I didn't kill the cat, I swear. So things are a little bit uncomfortable. But Wes is like, hey, get out of my room. Sorry about the cat. Let's just leave it there. Okay. So then it's later on that night and Dan's in his bed. And all of a sudden you just hear like this howling. It's worse than a screeching cat. I mean, it is loud. And Dan literally jumps out of the bed and is like looking around like, what the hell is that? And then we hear it again. And he goes to grab a bat and runs out of his room. And he starts calling for West. He's like, West, West, what is that? Do you hear that? And he tries, he starts pounding on West's door and West doesn't answer. And we hear this screaming again. So then that's at the point he realizes it's in the basement. So he goes to open the basement door, but it's locked. So he rams into it, hoping to open the door. Well, he hits it so hard, the door goes flying open. He goes rolling down the stairs. And now he gets up and he's kind of in a daze. And all of a sudden you hear Herbert screaming, get it off me, get it off me. Yeah. <laughs> and you, here comes Herbert running in with this obvious, oh God, it's so funny, but it's so great. This fake cat that's stitched to his back and you can see his face has all been scratched and he's all bloody and he's running around the room trying to shake it off and he starts yelling at Dan like get it off me get it off me and then they eventually get it off and I can't remember who throws it across the room but it's a cool shot because they have this one light and the light's swinging back and forth so it kind of lights the room and it goes dark and then you just hear the cat but you don't see the cat and they're chasing the sounds around the room and things are kind of toppling over. And then eventually there's that quick shot of the cat lunging at, oh my God. I think it's yeah. Dan and Dan goes flying across the room and then they eventually re-kill the cat. Yeah. And then that's when West explains to Dan that he's created this reagent that can bring things back to life. And we see the cat there and the cat's literally split in two. Its eyes are punched in. It looks horrible. And Dan Guts doesn't believe him. Out. No, you didn't really kill the cat before. You just kind of put it to sleep and made me believe that it was dead. Uh, really was alive. And Wes is like, nope, I'll show you. And he gets the reagent out of the fridge, injects it into the poor cat. And then the cat comes back to life. And ugh, that poor cat, it looks nasty. It's it pretty is nasty. Nice. So then you kind of know, then Dan believes like, holy crap, he's been able to bring things back to life at that point, of course. Megan comes down, sees the cat, and then Dan tries to explain to her what West has done, that he's been able to reanimate dead tissue cells, but she wants to hear nothing of it. And again, this confirms her suspicion of West. And then this really gets the ball rolling from that point on. I just love the fake cat. The fact that they're chasing noises around the basement the use of lighting and then the cool animatronic out there at the end. Some good stuff. Great call. Well, well described and you nailed it from a filmmaking standpoint. Yeah. Some great techniques are used and that cat is so fucking fake. It's amazing. It's so hilarious. When you said it, when Dan first sees West screaming and the cat is stuck to his back, 
it just looks like a stuffed animal Velcroed to his shirt. It is hilarious. And then that moment when the cat just jumps, it's like supposed to be a jump scare out of the darkness. And it's just this frozen looking stuffed animal coming out of the darkness. It's hilarious. But I have to say the cat screaming, squealing, agonizing sounds that come from the darkness or from another room are really creepy. They're very creepy. Some good sound effects. The other elements and the techniques that they use in the movie make up for the fake cat. But I think fake cat's part of the comedy. It's part of the, I mean, it's just part of the over the top nature. So it does work. I initially had it as a complaint because I was just like, oh my God, this cat is just so dumb. But man, it's funny. It's, yeah. it's funny. And that is the explanatory scene. So we haven't really seen, we haven't seen outside of the cold open. We haven't seen any dead bodies or humans coming back to life. So this is just the first experiment we see on an animal and Wes does a little bit of the explaining of how it works, but still there's no real scientific jargon. It's just saying, oh, I have this animation solution, I think he says, or something to that effect. Right. Uh, and it's like, wow, could you be more vague? <laughs> and Dan's like, oh, okay, sure. And then Wes wants to move to human trials. I'm like, um, did you just see what happened with the cat? Come on, man. <laughs> Maybe you should work on rats first. Baby steps. Great stuff, man. I have a moment here. I'm going to just shout out real quick because uh, I thought it was a solid scare. It just really was smart in the way it lured me in. And this is part of the comedy of the film is this love story between Dan and Megan. Because, again, it's just this doomed relationship from the start because Megan is the daughter of the dean. And once the dean finds out that uh, they're having this intimate relationship, and not only that, he, he seems to be very aware of it. And this comes later in my complaints, actually, I have some issues here. But the fact that Dan is involved with these, quote unquote, like illegal and dangerous experiments with Herbert West, he's being forced to basically leave school or his loan is rescinded. His school loan is rescinded and West is being kicked out and all these things are happening and Bottom line is too many things have happened now at this point in the movie where Megan's father, the Dean, has been reanimated and he's been kept alive. He's been lobotomized by Dr. Hill and basically being used as a zombie follower of Dr. Hill's, uh, being manipulated by Dr. Hill. And Dan and Megan don't know what to do. They get they reunite back. I think it's at the Halsey household at Megan's house. And they have this terrible, terrible love scene. It's so cheesy. And they're just kind of like, I really wanted to hate you, but I can't. And this is off. And the camera goes back and forth. And I'm like, going, what are we doing here? What is the scene between the two of them? Are they going to be together or not? And then it's a two shot of them standing in front of a door and Dan does this awful delivery of just the simple, I love you. And it's great because I'm just going, boy, this is awful. And just then the hand crashes right through the door and it's Dean Halsey, at least the zombie version of him. And he reaches through the door and it's a great jump scare. You're totally lured into that moment. I just wanted to call it out. It's one of my favorite moments. It's like, ooh, they got me. They totally got me there. Yeah, was I was one. totally sucked into this horribly written love scene <laughs> and the hand bursting through the door. And it's Dean Halsey, Megan's father, who is now, like I said, zombie. And he's there to kidnap Meg, which is what he does. He knocks out Dan and then kidnaps Meg and brings her back to the waiting Dr. Hill. And he technically preps her for the rape. 
which is horrible. Yeah, it's awful. He brings her to the mortuary, throws her on the exam table, and then strips her naked. Yeah, yeah, tears the dress off of her nightgown yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, it's pretty graphic. Mm-hmm. And she is full frontal nude, man. She is completely vulnerable and exposed. It, it's rough. Whew. All right, um, so I'm going to go to my final scene, but it's all the way at the end. Do you have anything before that? Or No, I, I actually was going to bring up the end as well. That was my, oh, next, okay. my next favorite moment and or scene. This is what made me, reminded me a lot of Pet Cemetery in this. In the movie, all hell has broken loose. So Megan is brought back to the mortuary. Dr. Hill is hoping to have his way with her because he's had this infatuation with her. We even find that Dan has gone to Dr. Hill's office and found a file folder of Megan. Uh, lock of her hair. I think it was one of her skirts. Any article that has about her. So he's he's been obsessed with her. And now that he's batshit crazy, it's gotten worse. And the part where Hill is about to, we'll just say raper. Luckily, Herbert West comes in to kind of save the day. But uh, West is actually walking into a trap because Hill has now taken all the corpses in the mortuary and injected them with the reagent and they've all sprung to life. So now a big fight scene breaks out and now Dan comes in to try to help West and they eventually smash Hill's face. So he's dead. And now the zombies are mindlessly going their own way and West gets captured by the torso of Hill, which I don't understand hmm. what the hell happened there. That's really, I can't when even explain. like intestines, it has a hand out, outside. It almost like it yeah. forms into a hand and then grabs West. And West is like, get out of here. So Dan and Megan leave the morgue and they're trying to get into the elevator. And there's some of the zombies are aimlessly going around. And one of them attacks Megan and starts choking her. And I don't know what it is about zombies. They always seem to have super strength when they become zombies. I don't know why Mm -hmm. that is. So Dan can't stop the zombie from choking Megan. So he runs down the hall and gets an axe and literally chops off the zombie's arm, pulls the hand off, but Megan is unconscious. So he takes her up the elevator, takes her into the, the movie open where we first see Dan, and he starts giving her CPR, hoping to bring her back to life. And unfortunately, she is declared dead. And you're like, oh, man, what a bummer of an ending. Well, we don't even know it's the end, but the ending's about to happen. So all the other doctors and nurses clear out, and he's in the room with her, and he leans over to give her a kiss. And then he gets back up, and then you can just see, like, the light bulb goes off. Wait a second. I know what I can do. And you're like, oh, shit, don't, don't, don't. Sure enough, he's got a vial of the reagent. And he preps a syringe and he's about to put it into her. And what's cool is the movie totally fades to black. And the only thing that you see is the glow of the reagent because the reagent basically is stuff for glow sticks from Halloween. You see all the time. That's that is a fluorescent green from yes. Goo or liquid from yeah. Glow stick. So that's all you see. And then all of a sudden you could see that it gets plunged in. So now it's completely black and then you hear Megan start screaming and then it goes to credits. And you're just like, shit, what happened? Like I said, it is a lot like Pet Cemetery, 
when the wife dies and then the husband picks her and goes to bury her and they're like, don't do it. Don't do it. But we see what happens when she comes back and that's doesn't end well. No. But yeah, I thought it was a good ending. It was like, oh. It's a great ending, man. I absolutely loved it. I thought there was a portion of the scene, which I'm going to call out, that I felt was actually pretty cinematic and got me going. Because once we understand that this zombie that was choking Meg has, for all intents and purposes, uh, killed her, but we only understand that she's unconscious at this point, Dan picks her up and carries her in his arms, and his, he's racing through the halls of the hospital. It's just really cool, very cinematic, because it's a real hero shot, and we got the blinking lights going, and I, there's great music in this moment, this great pounding music, this dun, dun, dun. There's just people running around in total chaos, because there's just been basically a zombie apocalypse or zombie attack. And it's a smart callback to the introduction of Dan's character, as you'd mentioned earlier, Bill, that we are introduced to Dan as he's using the defibrillators to try to revive this woman. And so he's doing the same thing here at the very end, trying to revive Megan, and it doesn't work. Yeah, it's it's just a really cool moment when he's carrying her through the hospital with the music. And I was like, oh, man, this movie got kind of heavy in a moment. This movie is strange in that way. There's a couple moments where it'll grab you that way, which is a testament to the quality of the film. These guys knew what they were doing when they made it. So great ending. Did you have anything else or did I step on your... Not at all. That was it for me. All right. You can keep it moving. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaints. And why don't we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. And I mean holes created by laser surgery. By yes, that's true. There's a lot of outrageousness in here. My just big thing was, I just wanted to know, how did Herbert West make this reagent? And why does he seem to have an endless supply of it? Great question. He seems to pull it out of his pocket whenever he needs it. Even after Hill said he took it all, he still seems to have more. And the fact that Hill had enough to revive all those corpses in the morgue, that's a lot of stuff. Like, we never see him even making it, or he makes a lab out of the basement. You don't see anything. Where the hell did this shit come from? Yeah. I just want to know. That's really the conceit of the film. That's why I was going to say we don't even need to get into the holes of the movie because there are so many. We just don't have any understanding. We are just supposed to go with it. We do have to buy into the suspension of disbelief, and that is the conceit. We don't know what the science is. We don't know what the chemical compounds the serum is made up of. We don't know what the rules are of a lot of this, but I agree, man. You would, I wish I would have seen a little bit of it, just a little bit of the creation, the storage. Maybe in this uh, fiction, the serum is developed from certain naturally natural chemicals the body makes or whatever it might be and a combination of those things. Anyway, there's just no explanation. Right. The hard thing is it would have been so hard to explain I didn't think about it while the movie was going on. It wasn't until it was over that I went back like, wait, where did it come from? You just get the sense that he developed it somehow with Dr. Gruber. That mm-hmm. through their, that he was basing his research on Dr. Gruber's research. And together, they probably had figured it out. Who knows if he actually killed Dr. Gruber in order to test his reagent? We don't know. No. But 
you can try to extrapolate certain things from the cold open, I suppose, for as the origination of the reagent serum. But yeah, we only see really that small vial in his mini fridge. So you would think that's all he has, but he seems to be pulling out a vial like every five minutes. I'm like, he must have like a gallon tanker somewhere. Right. And he even talks about the containers that he's using too, which is funny because at one point he pulls out the little plastic bottle of it. He comments on the durability of the, the plastic, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny. But yeah, that just made me think of uh, Frankenstein, which this is very similar to in a lot of ways, of course. And how even in that, the creature we understand is rejuvenated by lightning, by electricity, is what sparks the life within him and all the machinery around. I don't, There's some sort of, there's something grounded in that, that we see some kind of science being developed and or the technology is present. And that lends itself to some believability where it's like, okay, that's enough. I just, that's all I needed to see. I'm in, I get it. Whatever happens from here on in, I believe it uh, for the sake of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Not not a lot to go on in this one. Yeah. And like I said, if you don't have that much of it, and all he wants to do is stick it into every corpse he can come across, whoa, slow your roll, man. Yeah. Take baby steps. He just doesn't take any baby steps. I'm going to take this to the morgue and just start shoving it in the back of everybody's head. And- oh, he's a total psycho. Yes. He's a total psycho. Uh, great stuff, man. Yeah, here's some complaints. Okay. My experience having roommates, and I've had a lot of great roommates, man. I've been very fortunate over the years. But you don't ever go into a roommate's room without knocking first. Okay, Megan, you, you just got to take it easy. I know you're looking for Rufus, but that's just totally nitpicking. I just had an issue with Megan in that scene. You just knock on the door and ask, you know, hey, West, are you in there? Mm-hmm. Looking for Rufus. But she just goes into the guy's room. Breaking some roommate code. Here's a complaint I had, uh, Bill Bant. I felt like, okay, after we understand that Dan has been working with Herbert West on some of this uh, experimentation, especially we've seen the scene with the cat. And unfortunately, Megan comes in at the the end to see that Rufus has, you know, met a untimely and unfortunate demise and she freaks out. So we're uh, to assume that she says something to her father, whom is the dean of the school. Now, Dean Halsey comes down a little hard on Dan Kane, in my opinion. He's like rescinding his school loan, and he almost acts as if he doesn't know what he's doing with his own daughter. When in a previous scene, you have the Dean at dinner with Dr. Hill and Megan, and Megan says she's going to go study with Dan after dinner, and it's clear to everyone that Megan is with Dan, that they have a relationship, including her father. But he gets all miffed and is saying that he's taking away Dan's school loan because of the experimentation, the illegal stuff he's doing outside the realm and outside the rules of the school and the program and all that stuff. He acts as if he doesn't know the extent of Dan's relationship with his daughter. And I was thinking also, wouldn't the dean of the medical institute be somewhat interested in these medical advances? Like, this is a huge deal. Like, this is a big discovery. It may be outside the lines of legality or outside the boundaries of what is legal and what's not and what are the standards of their own program. But still, I would think he'd be really interested or want a piece of it. I don't know. And then he's all upset with, oh, he actually says to Kane in that this is in Halsey, Dean Halsey's 
office where he's reprimanding Dan saying, I'm taking away your loan. You're out of here, et cetera. And he, he gets mad at Dan for working with West. And I'm like, didn't you literally pair him with West in the beginning of the movie? I mean, the Dean really introduces Herbert West to Dan Kane saying, you, you guys are going to be working together. That scene just pissed me off a little bit because I felt like Dan was being unfairly treated by the Dean in that uh, scene. Yeah, you're, you're totally setting me up here, Jason. Great. You just threw me a softball. So I'm, I'm going to explain this because I had the same feeling when I watched this. I was like, whoa, he's coming down really hard on Dan when Dan's trying to tell him, like, West invented this thing that can bring people back to life. There's a missing scene that uh-huh. explains all this. Okay. All right. And you actually touched on this earlier. So originally in the script, you find out that Hill has a very good understanding of hypnosis. Aha. Here we go. Okay. So in the scene before, when it's Hill, the Dean and Megan, and they're at dinner together, and then Dan comes in and he picks up Megan to go have their study time Mm -hmm. slash sexy time. Right. So then it's the Dean and Hill are in there together and Hill hypnotizes Dean at that point saying, West and Dan are your enemy. I'm in love with your daughter. You need to get rid of West and Dan. Oh, that's the deleted scene is yes. the hypnosis. It's, a, it's a, almost Hill like, yeah, I guess it's an extended, it's an extended scene. It just or got extended, cut short. Yeah. The scene continues and he literally hypnotizes the Dean saying that right. Dan and West are basically conspiring against you. They're your enemy. And it's also supposed to explain how Dr. Hill has control over the corpses because he has this hypnosis ability. And they decided no one gives a shit that he can hypnotize people and they just cut it out for a time. So that scene is very weird. I was thinking the same thing you were thinking. And then I had to watch yeah, the okay. extra features. I saw the scene. That makes a hell of a lot more sense now. They could have. They, it's literally another two minutes. They could have kept it in there. Well, see, so I'll just speak on this really quick then, because this was. I was going to put this in my additional thoughts. I did put it in my additional thoughts, but I'll, I'll mention it now. Is that I thought it was interesting this this idea that Doctor Carl Hill could manipulate other people's will or impose his will upon others, and I thought that was kind of part of what he was attempting to do with this laser surgical procedure that he had invented. And that's why at the end, when it seems oh so perfectly timed, when West and Dan and Megan are all there in the morgue, and all of a sudden the headless Dr. Hill uh, has all of the corpses in the morgue rise at the same time. I had not only assumed that he had injected the reagent serum in all of those corpses, but that he had also lobotomized them, as in used that laser surgery to somehow at reach that part of the brain that controls will. Right, they can manipulate them easier, yeah. That makes right. sense, yeah, I like that too. Because if you recall in the opening when... Herbert West is introduced to the school and the Dean brings him in and Herbert West presents himself like as this adversary of Dr. Hills and says, I know about your research tapping into the will of the brain or something like that, the brain's will. And I was like, 
oh, that's that's an interesting concept. And clearly that's HP Lovecraft type of stuff right there. I wish they had delved into that a little bit more. That was very cool to me is exactly what was Dr. Hill up to in his manipulations and Machiavellian kind of idea. You know what I mean? And if that was deleted like that because he was using hypnosis, that was his bag. That was his thing was trying to manipulate people's will. And if we got a little bit more emphasis on that, I would have liked that and how he used that in a uh, medical capacity as well would have been cool. Like, And that's how he manipulated the corpses at the end, was not just bringing them back to life, but bending their will to his own. And that's how they were all coordinated at the same time to attack and do exactly whatever his bidding was. Anyway, sorry, that was not short at all. Just went off tangent. That's okay. Anywho, where are we with complaints? So I just have one other complaint. All right, so if you're going to build a set where you have to have a character slam into the walls, make sure you build it sturdy, please. That was my next complaint. Get out. That was it. Oh, it's hilarious. Amazing. It's hilarious. That's in Dr. Hill's office yep. with the padded room and the uh, two-way mirror. I love the fact that he has a padded room with a two-way mirror in his oh, office. Oh, I know. That's creepy as fuck. It certainly is. Uh, the fact of the matter is, at this part of the movie, we know that Dean Halsey, Megan's dad, has been reanimated and he's still alive. And now he's being kept under surveillance by Dr. Hill in this padded room where there's a two-way mirror so he can keep an eye on him and watch him and study him. And at this point in the movie, we really understand how Dr. Hill is creeper and he comes on to Megan and Megan freaks out and is like, no, I'm going to take care of my dad myself because Dr. Hill is wanting to do this exploratory research and he ends up doing that. He lobotomizes Dean Halsey. But anyway, Halsey's in the padded room and, the, and there's a quick shot where these orderlies go into the padded room and do this really half-assed. They try to tackle, right? Yeah. Try to like rein in Dean Halsey, who is zombie-like. So he's kind of, you know, a little bit unpredictable. And the halls, so one of the orderlies kind of grabs Dean Halsey around the waist and pushes him into the wall housing the two-way mirror. And you see the entire wall swing back and forth, like lean back and forth. And you understand, oh, this that's just like a flat. It's a piece of the set that is just not loosely fastened. It's really bad. It was funny. I, I laughed. I was like, oh. You missed one there, guys. That whole wall is swinging back and forth. Yeah, you have a basically a lunatic, and he can't slam to the walls because he might knock the set down. Not a good idea. What a poor fate for Dean Halsey. Because even at the end, he gets ripped apart oh, yeah. by the other zombies because he kind of helps save his daughter. He has a little bit of recollection of who he is. Right, a little the price. sort of redemption. Yeah. Yeah, he was having his daughter get raped. Yeah, and not to dwell on that particular scene that much, but I did have a complaint with that because when Meg is naked on the table, she does get one of her hands out of the strap because she's Correct. been strapped down. And I was like, hey, you got one hand out. You're being groped and molested. Why don't you unsecure your other hand and or use your free hand to punch the shit out of the head of Dr. Hill? I don't know. I thought she could have done more with her free hand there. Yeah, maybe she's just so traumatized. I mean, yeah, you do. Have uh, it's a, a, it's a yeah, headless guy in a lab dish full of blood. 
Hey, can you answer this question for me real quick? It was a complaint, but I think you already answered it. When West injects the serum, the reagent, into Dr. Hill's headless body, Mm-hmm. So we're we're to understand it. Is that just another reveal in the movie that this serum not only works on the brain stem to reanimate, but on just any sort of once living tissue, like human tissue of some kind, that it can reanimate? I guess anything? so. Any like you can be injected in any part of the body because it felt like the emphasis was this is a really here's a complaint. It's really nitpicky, but it's hilarious because throughout the film. We understand that injecting the, you know, at least in the beginning, injecting the reagent into the base of the neck in the back of the, like the brainstem is where you're supposed to. Right. He usually injects it in that spot every time. Right. And it's funny because every actor that does it in the movie, you can clearly see they're missing the mark by a mile because they're not going to really poke the other actor in the head. Even at the very end between Dan and Megan, when he does the thing, he literally is at the completely wrong angle. Going in, like he's just poking the syringe into the bed next to her. It's not even going, but it's funny. But then when West injects the serum into Dr. Hill's headless body, the body comes to life. And I was like, oh, okay. So this stuff just works on any human. Well, you actually said it pretty well. You said it uh, like human cells, it just reanimates human cells that they don't have to be in the brain. I think West was not expecting that because he kind of injects it and then just, leaves it alone. Yeah, he, then he turns his back. So I think yeah. that was a, for him, it would be an amazing side effect discovery. I don't think that was his initial intention because I think he would have kept an eye on the body Yeah. also. And he kind of does it. He just kind of injects it and then he's just so focused on Dr. Hill's head that, yeah, he gets blindsided by the torso. So, yeah, I think that was a, a side effect that he did not know was going to happen. Right, and, which is know. cool, which is cool. I'll buy it. Okay. I'll buy that for a dollar. All right, ready to move on? Let's do it. So it's now, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, right. we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Uh, I'll go first on this one. Do it. And yeah, we've mentioned uh, this person a whole bunch of times. And the actor's name is Al Berry. And he plays Dr. Hans Gruber. And uh, as we've mentioned before, we meet Dr. Gruber uh, very early in the movie. So he's the first person that we see fall victim to the reagent at the University of Zurich Institute of Medicine in Switzerland. And uh, yeah, it didn't go so well. Uh, We have mentioned Al Berry before in a previous podcast. The last Starfighter. So yeah. he was the spy from Rylos who gets his brain melted by Zur. So, yeah, he doesn't have very happy endings uh, in his films. Most of his other credits include in such television shows as Harper Valley PTA, One Day at a Time, and First and Ten. Um, since it's October, the most notable role might be as Harry Grimbridge from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. He was the patient at the very beginning who sends Dr. Daniel Chalice on his adventure to figure out the mystery of the masks and ends up sleeping with Harry's daughter, Ellie. So that's Al Berry. Al Berry. That's excellent, man. So for my Hey, It's That actor, I had chosen Al Berry. The same. 
Uh, and I'm yeah, so glad you that you had chosen him because you did such a better job with the research on him. I had it all wrong with his character as the Ryland spy from Last Starfighter. I thought he was somebody else, so but you got it right. And you thought he was the C4 guy? That was my first thought. That's what I thought, too. Then I, I uh, switched it to somebody else. Anyway, uh, so I'm glad you did that, but I came prepared. I have a backup. Nice. My Hey, It's That actor is Peter Kent, who portrayed... Oh, yes. Very good. Melvin the Reanimated. <laughs> That's his character. That's how he's credited on IMDb. In the film, he's the first human trial, basically, that we know of, at least, when Herbert West and Dan Kane go into the morgue, because they've both been basically kicked out of school by the dean, and that they're like, screw this. We're, we're up in our game. We're taking it next level. And this is what Herbert West wanted to do anyway after the cat incident. He's like, we got to do a human trial. So they go to the morgue and they got to find the perfect specimen. And they uh, land on Melvin, who is this uh, pretty buff dude. And uh, he comes to life after being injected with the reagent and uh, goes crazy and ends up killing the Dean. And uh, before he meets his demise by getting a bone saw through the back and through then through the chest. So that's a lot of fun. Peter Kent, who's uh, still with us, is a larger gentleman standing at six foot five from British Columbia. Stuntman and actor. And I'm just going to read this from IMDb. In 1984, having done Shakespeare in various local theater groups, he decided to move to Los Angeles to pursue a film career. Although he had no previous film experience or acquaintances in Los Angeles. And after living in the, notor the notorious YMCA off Hollywood's infamous Sunset Strip for a tenuous and outrageous six months, he was taken under the wing of James Cameron to double Schwarzenegger in The Terminator from 1984. Peter Kent's minimal stunt experience did not stop him from quickly learning the ropes and becoming one of the most celebrated and highly paid stuntmen in the business. His association with Schwarzenegger lasted 14 films and 13 years, both as friend, workout partner, ski buddy, confidant, chef, and dialogue coach. His apprenticeship on 14 of Schwarzenegger's films, from Terminator to Jingle All the Way, has put Kent in a position to understand that genre better than most, and having access to a variety of the best screenplays in Hollywood was to, again, prove useful in later years. Uh, to round it out, while making Eraser in 1996, Kent was almost killed when he was struck by a three-ton shipping container 100 feet in the air. It was then he decided to pursue a different, less life-threatening line of work, seeing as how he had been injured in some way during nearly all of Schwarzenegger's pictures. Doubled Schwarzenegger for yes. a long time. Yeah, I actually had Peter in my, in my facts and trivia, so... I'm glad you already did all the setup for me. I appreciate that. My pleasure, man. That's what I'm here for. I set them up, you knock them down. So speaking of facts and trivia, we're moving on to facts and trivia. Do we have all any right. facts and trivia yet that we have not stepped all over? I think I've already stepped on half my stuff, but I got a little bit left. First thing I'm just going to mention is really funny. So this is Stuart Gordon's uh, feature film debut. And according to the cast, Stuart's direction was always more is more. Never more is less, meaning he literally always wanted them to be over the top and go that extra mile in the scenes. And it really shows and it, but it works, but it does work for this movie more. I want more, more of it. That's great. Go all out. That's awesome. 
So I had mentioned earlier that the university where our medical students are studying and training is in Arkham, Massachusetts. And Arkham is a fictional city situated in Massachusetts. It's an integral part of the Lovecraft Country setting created by H.P. Lovecraft. Arkham is featured in many of his stories and those of other Cthulhu mythos writers. The Cthulhu mythos is something that H.P. Lovecraft had manufactured, uh, Cthulhu being a creature at the center of one of his stories. Regardless, the Arkham House, a publishing company started by two of Lovecraft's correspondents, August Derleth and Donald Wandre, takes its name from this city as a tribute. Arkham Asylum, a fictional institution in DC Comics' Batman stories, is also named for Lovecraft's Arkham. I never knew that. I did not either. I didn't really know anything about H.P. Lovecraft until this movie. Yeah, I just know that there was the short-lived HBO show, Lovecraft Country. And then, um, yeah, I mean, that his stories have been adapted over time in different ways, shapes, forms. He had some wild, weird, scientific, fantastical ideas. So Stuart Gordon actually does adapt three more stories of... H.P. Lovecraft. I didn't write it down, but I think one of them's From Beyond, which I've never seen, and now I need mm-hmm. to see because Jeffrey Combs is in that and also Bart McCrampton, which I heard yeah, is even more, a little bit more batshit crazy than this one. That, <laughs> is on, that is on my watch list. Um, so in order to cut costs for the film, John Nowlin, hopefully I said that name right, um, who was part of the makeup crew on the film just happened to be teaching a class on special effects makeup and had his class help on the movie. So uh, it was a little practical training for them and a resume builder, a little free help there. That's pretty cool. How cool is that to be in a class and like, yeah, you're going to work on an actual film. Hell yeah. Especially that because the makeup effects are really good. They're, they're super solid. Especially with the corpses, because he's like each death is something different. Like someone's, you know, someone was shotgun blast to the face. You have like the, burnt corpse there's a suicide i mean of course everyone is is different but uh and even yeah i'm sure they had all their nicknames like behind the scenes oh yeah sure they had names for and it was even cool uh when melvin comes back and he's running around and you can see like his whole back is all purplish because you know the way Mm -hmm. your blood supposedly pulls into your back and you get that purplish hue i was like oh that's impressive I know what that's called, and I can't think of it because I, I listen to way too many true crime podcasts. Damn it. What's that? It'll come to me. But yes, a lot of attention to detail. Some great makeup effects. Uh, Reanimator was originally devised by Gordon as a theatrical stage production and later a half-hour television pilot. The television script was revised to become a feature film. Filmed in Hollywood, the film originally was released with a rating from the Motion Picture Association of America and was later edited to obtain an R rating. It garnered its largest audience through the unrated cuts release on home video. You know, it's funny because I read that too. And then I saw in the um, behind the scenes when they were trying to pitch it as a show. You know what station they took it to first? PBS. Imagine PBS doing this. Yeah. All right. Right after Sesame Street. Thinking the first episode the of Reanimator. There. So a little bit more about Peter Kent, who played Melvin the Reanimated. Um, Jason already touched on his background. So he ends up killing Dean Hazley, 
And then he kind of has a gruesome demise himself, uh, thanks to a bone saw. And this was kind of cool how they achieved that effect. They made a cast of uh, Peter's torso, and then they laid the torso on top of Peter. And then for that scene, Peter's actually leaning forward, so the fake torso like flaps forward, but you can't tell. They so they set the camera so it's just his torsos, and there's a makeup artist right underneath. So when Jeffrey Combs looks like he's going to ram the bone saw through his back, it's actually the special effects artist who reaches up with the bone saw and then pushes it through the fake torso at the same time. And I think they had like meat and stuff. So it makes it look like it goes right through. So I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Pretty smart. Pretty easy. See, these, God, such a credit to the, these people that do that. Mm -hmm. These makeup artists, these makeup effects artists, so talented, so inventive, so creative. And you know, they just, they live for this stuff and they're they're having a lot of fun. It looks great on screen. That's very cool. That's a cool one. Thanks for sharing that. Now, here's, this is what I'm going to share. This okay. is important, and it's fun. It's a fun fact. The woman that Dan is seen attempting to resuscitate at the beginning of the film was a dildo enthusiast and was known to hide dildos with the fake corpses in the morgue set. Yes. <laughs> I read that one, too. I was like, oh, okay. Interesting. Oh, yeah, you decided to just pass on that, huh? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know why I didn't, I didn't put that down. Yeah. All right, so here's my uh, here's my last fact. So Herbert West, as portrayed by Jeffrey Combs, was selected by Empire Magazine as the 43rd greatest horror film character, describing wow. him as one of cinema's greatest mad scientists. Impressive, well deserved. He's great. He is. It's a fu- it's a cast. really fun character. It is. He must have had a blast playing it. I mean, he just goes for it. Just gets to go for it. You know. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm sure the directors just say, hey, look, there's no boundaries. There's, I'm not giving you any, uh, I'm not going to pull the reins back at all. You're just nope. free to go for it. Yeah. Give more. More. Get more is more. Yeah. I love that. I just thought this was cool. The building used for the Miskatonic Medical School is the same one as the Cyberdyne headquarters in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yeah, I saw that too. I'm like, oh, I got to watch now just to see. Shot from, you know, of course, a slightly different angle, but I can see it. Yeah, I could too. Because, yeah, because I guess the shots during the day, we usually see the building at night. So it looked a little different. Here's my last quick one. Uh, the role of Dr. Carl Hill uh, was originally written for Christopher Lee. But when Lee turned the role down, David Gale was chosen instead. And I think David Gale is excellent in this yes. role. Super creepy and very Christopher Lee-like, but not... Really, I guess David Gale is David Gale. He's great. He owns it. But he's kind of but little I can, Christopher Lee. I can see Christopher yes. Lee playing this part easily. I could see him not wanting to play the part, though. But mm-hmm. I, can, I can see a little bit of Christopher Lee in him. All right, so let's move on to box office. So Reanimator was released on October 18th, 1985, on a whopping 129 screens yeah. on an estimated budget of 900000 it grossed $2 million domestically. The movie debuted 16th at the box office. Reanimator had a 14% increase in ticket sales during its second week of release, but it was still outside the top 10, landing in the 13th position. 
it was out of the top 20 by its fourth week of release. So basically, everybody who's caught this movie, basically on home video. So moving on to reviews. So when growing up in the late 80s, we would tune in weekly to watch Cisco and Ebert at the movies to hear their latest reviews of upcoming releases. In the 1988 special edition of Cisco and Ebert's at the movies titled Hidden Horrors, which we have mentioned before during our The Hidden episode, Reanimator was one of the highlighted movies discussed. Gene referred to it as grisly fun and an entertaining picture, while Roger liked it very much and thought Stuart Gordon pulled off a horror movie with a satiric and comic purpose. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 94% and has an IMDb rating of 7.2. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Reanimator? Yeah, I mean, I already touched on this. You know, I, I don't mind the glossing over of the science in this movie, but uh, there was something interesting in Dr. Hill's attempt to control human will. I would have liked to seen more of that. I had the, like this idea of like Dr. Hill controlling an army of reanimated zombie soldiers kind of in a way. That's kind of a cool concept, but just manipulating will. I like that idea. But uh, here's my question for you. There's happens to be a handful of reanimation movies out there, Bill. So here it comes. Best reanimation movies? Okay. Or movie? We've got, and this is just a few, Frankenstein from 1931, Flatliners from 1990, Reanimator. We have here uh, The Lazarus Effect, 2015, 1962's The Brain That Wouldn't Die. I haven't seen that one. Robocop? Okay. The Crow, Young Frankenstein. Oh <laughs> man! Uh, Pet Cemetery, of course. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, just to name a few. Hmm. And it doesn't have to be one of those. I do love the classic horror films. That used to be like my mm-hmm. go-to Halloween. I'd watch Dracula and Frankenstein all the time. And yeah, let's go Frankenstein. Yeah, going old school, going the original. I mean, everyone usually says Bride of Frankenstein is better. Mm, right. No, we'll stick with Frankenstein. Do you have one? Yeah. We didn't mention, yeah, that this movie Reanimator has, there's a Bride of Reanimator, correct? There's a couple sequels. Yes, there is actually two more sequels. And I know I've seen Bride. I don't remember anything about it. And I I have not watched, I think the other one's called Beyond. Beyond Reanimator, I think. You have Bride of Reanimator in 1990 and Beyond Reanimator in 2003. So I've never seen it, but I, I, I need to watch the second one again before I move into the third. And I don't think Barbara Crampton, I thought for sure it had been with Barbara Crampton revived, but I don't even think she's in the second one. Mm-hmm. I don't, see, that's how much I don't even remember. So I don't know if it's that good, if I can't remember any of it. That's not a good sign. Right. No, usually it isn't. We've we've found that to be true on this podcast. Yeah. Did you have any uh, questions or that? I got one more question. Yeah, go ahead. If in the future... You had the option of being an organ donor or being reanimated after death. Would you opt for reanimation for the advancement of science, Bill Bant? Would you do it in the name of science? I'll stick with being an organ donor. You'd prefer to remain dead? Yeah, I think so. Um, Considering all the results we've seen in multiple movies, (laughs) nothing has come out good. No, thank you. 
that'd be funny if they asked you, you know, when you if you had a choice to be reanimated for science. If it like you check the box that says, if no, explain why. And you put done, have you seen reanimator? I'm like, no, <laughs> thank you. I'm take what you need, burn the rest. See, but that is one of the things that I like about this movie, Bill Band, is it kind of does make you think a little bit, right? Just like Frankenstein does, just like any of these movies, like Flatliners did that for me, uh, where it's like, ah, you're just curious, right? What happens? And you hear about people's experiences, people that quote unquote die and come back in, in the hospital regard, or hit by lightning or whatever, or just were dead for only a few seconds and come back to life. I think I would be more of the, you can cryo. Cairo, yeah, yeah, cryo, jeez, so, yeah, cryo. Cryogenics, being frozen. Do that. You can freeze me. I have something that you think you can cure 100 years from now. Maybe I would go that route. No, I don't want to be reanimated. I'm with you, Bill. I, it's just a little too creepy to me, get even wrap my mind around. But also, I totally agree with you. I would like to be frozen and jettisoned into space for an alien race to discover me at some point. And then they can reanimate me. And then I'll really freak out. As I'll wake up just amongst an alien species on a different planet. I'm copywriting that right now, by the way. That's that's uh, that's my new idea. So okay. don't steal it. Right here right. on the All 80s Movies Podcast. All right. Start working on that script. Got it. That's all I got, Bill Bant. Okay. So let's uh, move on to our rating. So, Jason, on a scale of one to five vials of reagent, what do you give Reanimator? Uh, I love it. I'm giving this a solid 3.5 vials of reagent. Yeah, this was fun, man. I was pleasantly surprised, especially by the fact that at first, I don't know that I knew this was a comedy, but you kind of, I mean, you just kind of get it. Things are so over the top, but there's just, I mean, it's just clearly not taking itself that seriously. It's more of just have fun with this. And that's what I ended up doing. I didn't pay attention to, although, you know, we call out some of the nitpicky stuff just for this, because we have that segment that we've got to go through in our podcast. But other than that, this is just a, a, a fun watch. It's only an hour and 26 minutes. Yeah, it's a short one. At least this version. So it's fun, great makeup effects, and you got to watch it for the performance by Jeffrey Combs and David Gale as well as Dr. Hill. 3.5 for me. I gave it four vials of reagent. Nice. Um, like I said, this this is the type of movie that's in my my wheelhouse. If you have a, a weak stomach or are not into gore, I would say stay away from it. Like the funny thing is when I went to rewatch this, um, I knew my daughter was still awake and I almost had to scare the crap out of her. Like I probably scared her more than the movie probably would have scared her. I'm like, do not come out. I'm watching this movie. Because I had no idea what scene she might have stepped into, and that would have probably traumatized her for life. There's yeah. a lot of that. There's a lot of blood because we have reanimated corpses in a morgue. They're not wearing any clothes, so you got a lot of that stuff hanging out all over the place. Oh yeah. So I think it's a lot of fun, but I would just say if you're just not into gore, over the top gore, then stay away. But if that's mm -hmm. your bag, if you like. Bad Taste or Dead Alive or Evil Dead or Return of the Living Dead. This is for you. Check it out. For You'll sure. Love it. Well said. Yeah. I got to go watch the, the next two. 
Okay, so I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at allatiesmoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at All 80s Movies Podcast, or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Next week, as we continue our Splatter Cinema Month, we will continue our series with Maniac Cop, starring Tom Atkins, Bruce Campbell, and Maureen Landon. So if you join us again, have a totally great week, everyone. Don't know why they keep locked doors around here. Nobody wants in, and ain't nobody getting out. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.